0: Welcome to the Queer Fitness Podcast. I'm your host, Elise, and each week I'll be interviewing a queer person about their experiences in fitness and sports. This week I talked to Alex Weaver, a personal trainer. Show your support for the show. Visit patreon.com slash queer fitness pod. With three different tiers, anyone can become a patron. There's bloopers every other week, bonus content from every episode, and you can have your name on every episode if you become a co-producer. Visit patreon.com slash queer fitness pod. Could you introduce yourself? Uh, your name your queer identity, pronouns, and any other words or hobbies or what you're doing now? Just sort of general introduction. Yeah.
1: So um, I'm Alex Weaver. My pronouns are they, them. Um, I am a queer and non-binary personal trainer and small business owner and also activist. Um, I am passionate about making fitness inclusive of all bodies and um, also creating trauma-informed and inclusive spaces kind of just in general in the
0: world. Cool, cool. Um, What was your journey to becoming a personal trainer? How did that all start? What sort of certifications have you gotten all of this?
1: So before I was a personal trainer, I actually played division one soccer. Um, So I've kind of been in sports for most of my life. And then when I was in grad school, um, was the first time that I wasn't, you know, on a competitive team or um, required <laughs> required to do any sort of, particularly like practicing or training for something um, specific. So um, I kind of taught myself a little bit more about weightlifting from other people. And then um, I worked in nonprofits for a few years after I uh, graduated. And then I just like, I kept kind of running into this this issue where like I felt like I wasn't in spaces where I was like being adequately compensated or even like fully welcomed. So. I eventually decided that I wanted to just like do a big career shift and I took a job at a gym, just kind of like on a whim. And, um, after being there, and this, this was a, mind you, like a big, like a big chain gym. Right. Uh, so it's not, it's not at all like the kind of fitness model that I am currently, um, engaged in, but, uh, but it was like at the time it was a good, like learning experience. But, um, so I honestly would say that between like just working there and seeing how, how, how people were excluded, or how people were told like their bodies didn't fit, or you know, just a, a lot of negative messaging or just negative treatment in general of um, clients kind of made me think about how the fitness model can look different. And also, um, I was reading The Body Keeps the Score um, actually while I was working there, um, which is, I don't know if you've read I haven't read mother. it.
0: No tell me more.
1: So it's, so it's this, it's this like very, I don't know how old it is now. I think it's a few years old, but, um, it's a book about trauma. So it's essentially like all the different tools and current, um, methods of kind of dealing with and coping with trauma, um, in a clinical sense and in in an individual sense in front of in this book. So it talks about, there's like chapters on movement, there's chapters on EMDR, um, different types of therapy, but, um, so I was really drawn to the idea of, like, movement as a healing modality because I am someone who has PTSD. So um, I've always kind of used fitness as a, a coping skill. So um, so between that and then my experience at the gym as a non-binary person when there was gendered locker rooms and, like, I worked there and I still didn't feel comfortable ever. Um, I eventually got my cert with NASM, my CPT. Then I added the CES and I started my own business. So. Cool. I love that gym. To be clear. Yeah. <laughs> to
0: be clear, I love yeah. that gym. Right. Could you talk a little bit about getting your certification and I do some people have talked about how the exercise science or the certification classes that they took also fit that same fitness yes. ideal. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yes. So uh, I think it's interesting, especially having a background as an athlete. And like, for example, like I played on what is considered so I played on a women's soccer team, right. because there is no like no gender inclusive option at uh, D1 level. So um, just knowing the difference between how the, the trainers for the teams treated the women's teams versus the men's teams. Like it's interesting the data, for example, on um, so all the data on ACL tears is based on um, talking about the different Q angle with um like the hip and the knee and if you actually like consider the the difference in programming and attention and funding that women's versus men's team men's teams gets and how a lot of fitness is tailored towards like a tradition like a six foot tall male like specific body type
0: right
1: um it's no surprise that uh people who are estrogen dominant are having more acl tears because Because like their programming is not reflective of their bodies, it's reflective of a different body. So um, there's a lot of gender-based, not even gender-based. It's almost it's like it's there's a lot of false science. I would say that still is creeping into a lot of the certs. And some of the information is really great and really helpful, but a lot of it you just kind of have to take with a grain of salt. And I fortunately have someone who. Um, I know people who can get me access to peer reviewed journals. And so when I have questions, I will often research myself. Yeah. So, um, I found that, you know, a lot of these certs are just like 10 and 15 and t- sometimes 20 years behind science in terms of like talking about gender, um, even nutrition, which is a whole different thing. Um, but yeah, cause there's a lot of fat phobia and there's a lot of um, diet culture that's kind of wrapped in, um, all of these certifications, regardless of who you're going through.
0: Yeah, definitely. Can you talk about, uh, like, building your own brand and small business um, as a personal trainer? Yeah.
1: Sure. Um, So once I got certified, I... I kind of started from the place of almost knowing I knew very concretely what I did not want to replicate. So that was kind of almost, it almost started with my list of things that I didn't want to do was longer than my list of things I did want to do just a little back uh, to back up a little bit. So my master's degree is actually uh, it's a master's in theological studies and I focused in ethics. So a lot of my um, studies were around social justice and inclusivity and things like that. Um, And most of the nonprofit work that I did prior to kind of switching careers, um, is in a similar vein. So I was trying to figure out how to take the social justice oriented practice that I had learned in graduate school and had been using in my nonprofit experience and kind of move it into the fitness world, which, um, turned out to be actually not that difficult, even though at first it seemed like I was really, you know, um, I don't know, there's no one locally that's doing the same kind of work. So I think the first thing that I did was try to find like-minded people on the internet who were doing it as well. And so like, as I was building my business, I was also following people like decolonizing fitness and non-normative body club and like all these other uh, personal trainers who were also trying to operate outside of this norm.
0: Yeah.
1: And um, I think that was helpful. Um, We actually converted a room in our house into a gym space Um, because Providence's rent is extremely expensive and I couldn't afford to rent gym space. Um, so I slowly bought a bunch of used fitness equipment and kind of built my own gym in the house. And I actually still see clients out of my house. I also go to clients and I coach classes at other locations. And then obviously I also do remote coaching, but, um, Oh, also I did, um, in September. So I got my cert in July for my CPT through NASM and then in, I think, August or September, I did a trauma-informed fitness professionals training, which was super cool. And then um, I finished my CES, which is uh, also through NASM, Corrective Exercise Science. And then by that time, I was finally in a place where like I felt like I had um, all the equipment, the skills, et cetera. And so I would say the first six to eight months of building a business were mostly just like trying to figure out what i was doing and making sure that i was doing things right and in an ethical way that supported the the model i wanted to create and then um in january of last year i don't know what i I honestly like a a switch flipped and then like it just was like everything kind of took off um and so now i'm coaching a trans wellness class that happens through a nonprofit here i'm coaching a class specifically for people in recovery Um, I'm coaching actually I just started coaching uh strength training for the Providence roller derby team. So um so yeah, it was kind of like the first six to eight months were kind of perilous and like I had to kind of build my own website, do all the infrastructure. I was like new to doing my own accounting, all that kind of stuff, but um now it kinda it's kind of more second nature. So it's it's easier for me to focus on like um my clients and um what I'm actually delivering as opposed to like figuring out how to run a business, which was definitely the first, I think that's the biggest hurdle if you're trying to branch out is figuring out how to run your own business.
0: Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Could you tell me more about what trauma informed coaching means to you?
1: Yes. So, so for example, if so, at a lot of gyms and then a lot of fitness classes, you'll see instructors um, not asking permission to touch clients coming up behind clients, um, yelling at clients, like a lot of things that like we would consider to be not trauma informed. So it kind of seems obvious, but a trauma informed approach means assuming that we don't know everyone's trauma or story. So instead of, um, you know, perhaps overstepping a boundary and then having to apologize, you are starting from a place where you're assuming like, okay, this person might not like it. If I touch them without asking, I should ask, or, um, this person, um, This person seems to be emotional when they do certain exercises, like maybe this is bringing up something for them in their body um, and then kind of like holding space for that. So it can mean a lot of things, um, but it's mostly meeting people where they're at and also making sure that you're respecting their boundaries and um, allowing uh, room for emotions and feelings to come up and um, holding space for that.
0: And that's also anti-diet culture as well. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yes. So I I don't think that you can be trauma-informed without being anti-diet culture, um, to be honest, because diet culture is really just selling shame shame and guilt around your body and what you're eating. And it's this like, it's almost, it is very re-traumatizing, especially for people who have eating disorders, to see the messaging that is just everywhere when it comes to like your body, your body isn't the right size or shape or Um, or like the idea that certain foods are good and certain foods are bad. Um, so these things kind of all play into a a bigger narrative that tells people that certain people are entitled to be respected and like allowed to take up space, whereas others aren't, um, which is obviously not a trauma informed way or an inclusive way of kind of, um, looking at humans.
0: Can you talk about um, some of your like chronic illness? Uh, I saw something about endo- endometriosis. Um, Ugh, yes, <laughs> and and some and there was something with your shoulder too.
1: Yes, so I'll start with the shoulder sure. that I feel is an easier explanation. So I'll, in my right shoulder, I have something called glenoid dysplasia or hypoplastic glenoid. They've changed. There's there's several uh, different ways to refer to it. It's essentially a genetic defect, which means that my shoulder joint didn't form properly. Um, I didn't find out till I was like 11. Um, and at the time, I was like, I was occasionally playing goalie for my soccer team. And I like fell and like hurt my shoulder. And so they took me for x-rays and they couldn't figure out. Uh, if the first, the, the ER doctors were like completely, they could not figure out what had happened. They thought I had broken my shoulder and a piece of bone was missing. Um, but then it turns out uh, several specialists later that um I actually just have a deformity in my shoulder. So what it means is um so your glenoid fossa is where your humeral head sits in the joint and it's typically curved, and mine is totally flat. So um what that means is my humeral head doesn't have like a like most people's shoulders have like a kind of a cozy space for their shoulder to sit in, whereas mine is not so cozy. So, um, when I was younger, I would have issues with my shoulder subluxing, um, which is like a, it's, it's almost like a dislocation, but it'll pop back into joint and sometimes it'll pinch, um, which it still does from time to time. But, um, but, uh, I've thankfully been able to keep up with physical therapy and I usually go every few years or so to kinda, um, to kinda work on keeping the joint stable, um, but it definitely has affected my training. I was actually told that I was never supposed to do push-ups or pull-ups as a child after this. And then it was like repeated at me um, when I was a teen. And I always was like, okay, well, I'm going to do push-ups and pull-ups. So yeah. so, so I kind of disregarded that. However, um, the range of motion, so the entire joint is actually rotated interiorly. So my shoulders kind of like rotated towards the front, which caps my range of motion overhead. So, um, the hardest thing for me is, um, like, so for example, I've wanted to be able to do a handstand for literally as long as I can remember, but I have such a hard time with the range of motion needed to be in that like direct, like full body weight overhead position. Um, and I don't know if I will ever actually be able to do a handstand, but, um, I will say that I've been, um, able to more concretely target my shoulder. Um, now that I am a personal trainer and like have like I've been doing this now for almost two years and I have a much better idea of how my joints work and like what is normal for me. So I'm hopeful that at some point I might be able to break through, but we can only, we'll we'll have to see. Um, But so yeah, so that's kind of, um, that's my right shoulder. And then, um, so endometriosis is a little more complicated. Um, So I actually was told, I want to say, I was, like, 20 or 21, um, and for reference, I'm now 29. I'll be 30 this year. Um, so I was told that I had PCOS based on the fact that I had to repetitively go to the ER for what I was told were cysts on my ovaries, and I would have, like, horrible um, horrible periods, horrible cramps, like, debilitating, and it's always been like that. Um, and so I, they tried me on a bunch of different birth controls. They tried all sorts of different... Um, like hormonal stuff, nothing really helped. Usually the side effects of whatever birth control were worse than the actual symptoms. Um, and then last year I actually went to the ER again for, I don't even know how many times I've gone to the ER at this point for this. Um, and they were like, Oh, actually we think you have endometriosis. So, um, the average actual, I think the average, uh, time span for endometriosis diagnosis is like eight years. So that's like pretty um on schedule, unfortunately. Gosh. But so um are you familiar with what endometriosis is? I or, am,
0: yes. But could you explain for the listeners sure. who maybe don't?
1: Sure. So essentially, um endometrial tissue is growing outside of the uterus. And um at this point, they've there are studies that have found the tissue like all over the body. So um there's really no way of knowing um where the tissue was growing without having uh, laparoscopic surgery to excise the tissue, which is like the only real way to kind of, uh, get rid of the symptoms. Um, unfortunately last year I had a very bad insurance that would not allow me to see a specialist. And the only specialists that I was able to see that were in my network, um, just kept suggesting, uh, hormonal menopause or a hysterectomy, which, um, I'm not on hormones and that would be a very big, um, that would have a pretty big effect on my body and my training. So I wasn't ready for that yet. So I have, I fortunately have a better insurance plan this year. So I am, um, again, trying to see a endometriosis specialist out of state who is now in my network for my insurance to kind of see what next steps are. But, um, the, the more, the, the more difficult, um, aspects of endometriosis for me personally have been that, um, last year I was having lower pelvic pain for like months on end on my right side. It feels like where my ovary would be. Um, and it got like it just to the point where that I still have it, but sometimes I forget that it's happening cause I'm so used to it. Um, and then with that, I also was having this issue with my left leg where I was having radiating nerve pain and numbness down the back of my leg. And so I, told my doctor and my doctor referred me to a um, specialist who did x-rays, looked at my back and there's nothing wrong with my back. So then the doctor was, his assumption was that it was just hormonal sciatica because it coincided with the same time in my cycle every single month. So like essentially for, for roughly six months at the, at a certain point in my cycle, my left leg would be numb for like several days and it would affect like how I rock walked, how I ran. I wouldn't be able to do like deadlifts or squats Um, so that was a real challenge, but, um, but I, fortunately, I think I've figured out some of the, um, the mechanics of like why it's happening. Like, I think it's partially due to like, um, pelvic floor tightness, hip flexor tightness, which is also really common with endometriosis because you're, you end up essentially clenching because you're in pain. So, um, if your abdomen is in pain, your body's response is to try to stop that pain. And often that means like tightening your hip flexors, tightening your pelvic floor, all those muscles, so I've been working on doing a lot of restorative stuff and kind of rehabbing my own, my own body. Yeah. And, um, I have finally gotten it to a point where like, if I start to feel that numbness creeping on, like, I know what stretches to do for my hip flexors. I know kind of how to, um, how to work around it. But, um, I did have to figure that out essentially by myself. Cause they were like hormonal sciatica, nothing we can do. And I was like, okay, well, that clearly can't be the case. Now it is possible that because you could have endo growing on your um, sciatic nerve. I am hopeful that that's not the case. I'm hoping that it's just somewhere else in the region and it's just irritating the nerve um, because of compression. But um, again, the only way that you can know is to have uh, laparoscopy done, which I am still waiting to get in with a specialist to kind of arrange that. So so I've been doing a lot of symptom management. Um, and the other piece is that with endo, you often have pretty significant GI disruption. And so, um, over the past couple years, I have had to cut out gluten, dairy, soy, um, because all of those things, like I, I already have pretty bad, um, abdominal pain. So like adding those things in, um, to make it worse. And, um, I did go to a GI doctor last year and she was basically like, yeah, I don't eat those things. So <laughs> again, it has not been, uh, it's hard to It's hard to explain how frustrating it is to have endometriosis, especially as a person who's non-binary and already has issues with, um, just kind of how like the medicalization of gender has affected and impacted me. Um, so it's been, it's been a challenging, that's been, that's been the most challenging health wise, I would say.
0: Yeah. Uh, speaking on the the gender side of things, how has being non-binary changed your personal fitness goals or view of your body? like what you want from your body through fitness? Hmm. I think, I honestly
1: think the more comfortable that I have become with who I am and my identity and kind of how, how I move through the world, the more my goals have become more about feeling good and strong in my body. Um, I think, especially when I was younger, I, I had a harder time identifying goals that weren't related to aesthetic or other, um, more like normative, um, normative goals. Um, I don't know. I feel like I've kind of been freed from a lot of expectations about like what my body should look like or how I should feel, or, um, you know, even what, what the right, the right and air quotes kind of workout is for a person, um, like me.
0: Right.
1: So I don't know. I just, I feel like it's been, it's been liberating and I feel more like when I'm training, I do things that are fun and like I do things that are playful and like I explore, like, can I do this movement? Is this like, is this motion even possible for me? And it's really taken a lot of pressure off of this idea that like you have to train for, um, looks or for, um, I don't know, even like maximal strength or whatever, just kind of, it's made it so that it's just a, it's a movement practice that I enjoy engaging in. And like, I like to set goals and I like to achieve them, but if I'm not achieving something, that's also okay.
0: Yeah. You're just having fun moving your body and, and being in that experience. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. I like that. Do you feel that uh, you give something different to your clients as a queer non-binary coach trauma informed anti diet all the things. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I do, and I think that sometimes it's actually I I've been trying to work on a blog about this, but I every time I write it, it ends up turning into like three different blog posts, so then I just get frustrated because the topic is it's such a big topic. But um so one of the things I notice is that especially people who've already had negative experiences with trainers or gyms, by the time they get to a trainer that is actually trying to be inclusive and positive about um, about fitness and about movement in general. Um, they often like, don't know they, without the shame aspect or like someone telling them like, you have to do this because you're bad. Like it's so much harder for them to figure out like, what, what is like, what do I want to do? Right. Cause like a lot of clients come to me and they've like ne- they, their trainers have always just kind of like set goals for them and kind of like told them what they should want. And so I think the most interesting aspect, especially with working with clients who like also are trans and also are queer and maybe like haven't felt welcome to express what they want with their bodies is like having the space to be able to say, actually, like I do just want to feel good in my body and I would like to be stronger and I would like to be able to do a pull-up. And before, you know, maybe that's what they wanted, but they didn't feel comfortable saying it or their trainer pushed them in a different direction. So I don't know, I think the coolest part about my job is that I can literally like uh, such a huge part of my job is, is just helping people figure out what they can do to feel good in their body and then kind of giving them a plan to get there.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Uh, going off of that, do you have a favorite coaching moment?
1: One of the, one of the hardest things I think for a lot of clients to
0: learn is
1: squats versus hinges. Um, and so a lot of clients will spend like weeks trying to figure out (laughs) the difference between a squat and a hinge because like they're very similar, but very different movements. And so, um, and obviously for deadlifts you need to be able to hinge. So, um, so working with clients, especially clients who like may not feel comfortable, um, like practicing being in a deep squat or a deep hinge position where they're, they're like vulnerable. Right. Cause it, think about it this way. So in a hinge or a squat, no, no matter what way you put it, you are essentially like you have to bring your hips back. And in a deadlift, you're even more like vulnerable in terms of the fact that you are like essentially bent over with your hips in the air. And so I think a lot of people feel uncomfortable with that for obvious reasons, especially if it's not something that you have grown up doing, like, like squatting with a team or something like that. So it may feel like a foreign movement to your body. So when someone figures out that they can put themselves in a position that was previously uncomfortable or they felt like they were going to fall over or they felt like, They look silly and they're like, oh, I can do this and I can be powerful. That's like such a cool moment. Cool moment that um, I don't know. It's 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 hard to explain. But like, I think also having clients who've been disconnected from their bodies, whether it's because of trauma or because of um, dysphoria, whatever, whatever the reason, um, seeing them start to connect like, oh, this is I can feel where this is happening in my body. And I can feel that, um, I'm contracting the right muscle. Like that's also like, a, it's a small thing that happens like pretty often, but I, that doesn't make it any less exciting when it happens. Cause it's like figuring out your own body. It's a really cool thing to watch feel bad. For example, I had, a, so I had a client who's a cis woman, um, who's, who's never really been with a trainer who wasn't telling her that she shouldn't eat things or that she needs to do more cardio or whatever. And I was like, do you like cardio? And she was like, no one's ever asked me if I like cardio. (laughs) And and I was like, okay, well, if you don't like cardio, unless you find something you like, you can just do weightlifting if that's what you like. And it was such a novel concept for her. And then we kind of had this dialogue that continued for weeks where we talked about she would kind of come to me and be like, "Um, I was told this was bad. Is this true? And then I would be like, no. um, you You can do what you want because you have free will and eating for example a donut is not bad
0: right
1: (laughs) like you can have a donut whenever you want um and so i think just like by the time by the time we've been working together for for i would say about six months she would catch herself saying negative things about herself and be like this is a positive space which is like a huge thing from someone who came in with like a lot of shame and guilt and kind of like realizing like I don't have to say these things about myself so um all that to say like I think that there's like plenty of space where these people like any honestly anyone anyone who's ever wanted to be involved in movement of any kind whether it's like in a traditional fitness sense or just like in a like wanting to move your body kind of way like were they aware that this was like an option I think that people would
0: be engaged in it. Yeah. Um, do you feel like there's anything I haven't asked?
1: It's, I feel like the more people know that this is an option that you don't have to work with people who make you feel bad, the more, the more trainers will start to recognize that like you can't sell packages off of shaming people. And right now I think the only reason that the industry is still so built on that is because People are afraid that if they change this, this, this model that they will no longer, like if people don't feel bad, maybe they won't want to do personal training. But honestly, I have had the exact opposite experience. And, um, like I remember when I worked at the gym, I previously worked at hearing the trainers always complaining about how hard it was to sell packages and how, um, they would have to, so at, you know, traditional gyms, they, they have you sign a contract where you have like a set number of sessions, right. And that's kind of how they lock you in. Um, which I don't do that. I also use sliding scale for my pricing. So um, when I have told other people who I used to work with that that's what I do, they're like, oh my God, you're never going to make any money. How are you going to get clients? So on and so forth. And it's like, I am fully booked. (laughs) And like, I am not, not buying Facebook ads. I'm not really like doing anything in particular. This is mostly just my clients telling their friends and like then their friends coming to me because people are so tired of working out in environments that feel unsupportive and just in general discriminatory. So I think, I don't know. I think there's there's a there's so much space for people to, you know, create room for everyone um, if they want to. Yeah. And uh, we don't have to just keep doing this. Like we really don't have to keep doing this old fitness model. It's not working.
0: Could you let people who are listening know where to find you? Ooh, sure. Um, so on Instagram, I
1: am. You can find me at, at @alienathlete. Um, on my website is uh, alienathletes.co, and um, I believe the Facebook is facebookcom Um, But I'm not 100% sure. If you search for alien athletes, it will come up. So.
0: To show your support for the show, visit patreon.com slash queerfitnesspod. With three different tiers, anyone can become a patron. There's bloopers every other week, bonus content from every episode, and you can have your name on every episode if you become a co-producer. Visit patreon.com slash queerfitnesspod.